Well, greetings again. Good morning to you. Thank you. Thank you for being here uh, this morning. You belong here. You were brought here by God's uh, sovereign hand, not your intuition, wise planning. You belong here. Thank you. Thank you for those of you who are joining us by live stream. If you ordinarily would be here, would you just assume that you are missed and you are loved? Our passage is from Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 11, the end of chapter 11. We're actually where 11 ends and 12 begins. Maybe if someone can find it in the Pew Bible and call out where Mark 11:27 is. Uh, we're going to look at um, uh, an event that happens in the life of Jesus and then a parable that Jesus teaches. And as you hear me preach, you'll hear my defense for why these two passages actually uh, belong together. So Mark 11, verse 27. Anyone find it in the Pew Bible? Got a page? All right, page 848 in your Pew Bible. And if it's wrong, Eric... <laughs> Uh, little theologians, glad you're here. Uh, by the way, little theologians, I need you to draw for me uh, something that's really big and dangerous, uh, a big, dangerous grizzly bear or, a, uh, or a, a, a big wave or tornado or a big ball of fire, fire, something that's really big and dangerous, but it's made out of very thin glass. You just throw a little rock at it and it breaks to a thousand pieces, right? So a big glass bear, you just throw a rock at it. So it looks big, but it's thin and fragile. And you'll hear me talk about that over the course of the sermon. That's human authority. We think we're so big and strong. One little rock. Well, uh, little theologians, as you uh, draw for me, you're thinking about something I'm talking about in the sermon text, could you give me, consider giving me that artwork at the end of the worship service? Uh, you don't have any place to go. I mean, you're going from there to the choir room for a time of uh, singing and fellowship, but I'll try and be uh, here up front and just give me those drawings as you make your way. Mark uh, chapter 11, beginning at verse 27. Let's pray together. Father, this is your word speaking to us, you making yourself known. Forgive us for over the course of this week, not spending the amount of time in your word that we should. Speak to us now, encourage our hearts, send us into this week, longing to learn more of you and your plan of redemption for us in Jesus Christ through your holy scripture. We thank you for being with us now in Jesus' name, amen. Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 27. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he, was, as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did, uh, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. 
And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected, excuse me, has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of our Lord. You may not know this, but I've been traveling this past week, and I love to travel. I don't do it very often, but this was a special trip for me, visiting uh, with uh, many church planters who are planting in a setting that I don't know very well, but I think I will get to know very well, a setting that is profoundly post-Christian, profoundly against the ministry of the church. I spent the last week in England and Scotland visiting with church planters, hearing their challenges and their struggles. Now, I've done this all my ministry here in the States. I was a part of a church planting movement in the uh, southwest part of the states, in New Mexico and Arizona and South Texas. I was a part of a church planting movement uh, in uh, Portland and Seattle and, well, Anchorage. But this was really remarkable to hear the struggles that these men are enduring. But I want to talk more about that later. What I want to talk about right now is I never thought that I would have to go to another country and be tested by medical professionals for a disease. I would have never imagined that I would be in downtown Manchester running around with several other American pastors looking for an opportunity to go into a drugstore and be tested for COVID. But it was necessary if I was to go to Scotland and if I was to actually come home. And I like home. Lately, many of us have been thinking about authority. Who has the authority to tell us to do something like that? We've been talking about authority that others have over us because we have felt that authority in ways that we haven't felt in a very long time. I'm speaking here of our American setting. Imagine someone having authority to tell you that you can't leave your house, that you can't go to a restaurant, that you can't go to another city. 
Imagine someone having authority to tell you when you can and cannot be with others, and in fact, who those others may or may not be. Some who have authority to tell us to strap something to our face. Some who have authority to tell us to put a liquid agent into our bloodstream. This is all compounded by a change in political leadership. A a more hands-off approach in America has been exchanged for a more hands-on approach. Doesn't this sound like a political sermon? From someone whom you've known for three years, I don't preach political sermons. But there is something about the topic of authority being on our minds day in and day out. And while it doesn't feel good, perhaps, I think that that setting of authority being on our minds actually primes the pump for us to understand something about what Mark Mark is telling us here in this passage. This passage is very much about people who have authority exercising that authority. That's really the central subject matter of this passage. It's centered on these people who have authority. They know it, and everyone else knows it. For proof, look at verse 27. This is how our passage opens. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. Those are individuals with authority. Individuals who are exercising three different kinds of authority, but here they are all together. But then look at the very end of the passage, verse uh, 12 of chapter 12. They, presumably the same people, were seeking to arrest him. What is that if it isn't an exercise of authority? These are the authority holders, and this passage is about authority. If you want to know an ugly truth about authority, let me offer this, and I can even offer myself as a bit of an example. Sometimes our view of authority, perhaps what you're feeling right now about those who have authority over us, but sometimes our view of authority actually changes when we ourselves gain a little bit of authority. When we're the entry-level workers in our company, we have one view of authority. We're watching them and we're critiquing those who have authority over us. We want them to have a limited scope and limited duration and uh, limited grounds for their authority. However, what happens when we grow in in that company and then we ourselves begin to occupy some executive office? Sometimes then our, well, our view of authority will change. We get just a little bit of authority and suddenly we're okay with a broader scope of authority, a broader duration of authority and more significant grounds for that authority. The reason I speak from personal experience is that uh, this can happen when someone goes from being the pastor of a small church to someone who becomes a pastor of a larger church. All of this is just a little too personal. But praise be to God that we would have this kind of passage to speak into the setting in which we find ourselves, because the passage is about authority, but not just authority. Our own personal sense of authority in comparison to the authority of Jesus. Mark is telling us in this passage this one thing. Following Jesus requires that our authority submits to his authority. That's really what this passage is about. 
Following Jesus actually requires our own authority, an authority that can, get, can grow and blossom over our lives, uh, our view of authority that can actually change as we get a little bit more power. But Mark is telling us that following Jesus requires that our authority, all of our authority, is submitted to his authority. This is actually what it means to be a Christian. Just think about that. All of the philosophizing about authority lately, I think, serves to teach us what it's like to follow Jesus. Following Jesus is actually a setting aside of your authority and my authority. Do you think that Jesus asks for anything more than mask wearing, anything more than vaccinations? Indeed, he does. He is our Lord. He asks, or rather demands, that all of your authority submits to his authority. Now, the first way that Mark tells us, this is a, a two-part sermon, it's the passage divided in half. The first way that Mark tells us that following Jesus requires that our authority submits to his authority is at the very beginning in verses 27 through 33, where we learn uh, that uh, we as people tend to believe that our authority is higher than the authority of Jesus. And then Mark, he actually gives us a parable of Jesus and shows that it's not merely a matter of just our belief. We believe that our authority is bigger than Jesus's authority. It actually uh, works itself out in the decision-making, in the, the way that we live our lives. That's what the parable shows. We confidently live as if our authority is higher than Jesus's authority. And there's the two parts of the sermon, something that we thoroughly believe and something that we confidently live. It's the ugly side of human authority. At first, we can thoroughly believe that our authority is higher than that of Jesus. Notice in verse 27 how the passage opens. Jesus, in fact, here is not teaching, is he? He's simply walking in the temple. This is perfectly natural. In fact, there would be many others like Jesus walking in the temple. And yet it's actually the chief priests and the scribes and the elders who compel this passage forward. They're the ones that go to Jesus. And in fact, what they're doing is just as natural as Jesus walking in the temple. What they're doing is they're assuming that their authority is over the authority of Jesus. Look what they say in verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? That's an audacious question, and yet it flows off of their lips so naturally. And it's remarkable that, uh, that they have this kind of authority, these, uh, these religious leaders, that they assume that they're the ones that are actually the credentialing agent for the authority of Jesus. These are the individuals who themselves, they have credentials, uh, they have a unique clothing that calls out their authority, uh, they have the kind of authority that is unquestioned by the Jewish public. Everyone acknowledges their authority, but not so with Jesus. And so in verse 28, they actually want Jesus to defend himself. They assume that they are the final arbiters of, of the authority of Jesus, and they're asking for his grounds of authority. On what basis, Jesus, do you have this authority? You know, Jesus, he has to explain himself to them if he's to have any authority at all. 
because these are the only ones that can actually certify his authority. The very assumption that they make is that the authority of Jesus needs to be authorized by their authority. And really, this pictures well the assumption of every person. Just think about people whom you know, whom you've tried to share the gospel with, and they just seem to be so hard-hearted that they're not likely ever to believe. You can't believe that's the case, but deep inside you wonder. They are so ardent in the rejection of Jesus Christ, you can't imagine them becoming Christians. We've shared the gospel with them. They've refused at every opportunity. Jesus doesn't have the authority to challenge their authority at all. And what they're doing is they're constantly testing Jesus. And at every turn, Jesus, he fails. We know people like that. That's an issue of authority, isn't it? They refuse to certify the authority of Jesus. But actually, there's some in this room who know that by personal experience. You actually remember when that was you, when you were the person who was testing Jesus, when you were the one who believed that Jesus needed to certify his authority before you. You yourself used to thoroughly believe that you had more authority than Jesus. You remember what it's like to think that way. But the truth of the matter is really this. If you peer deeply within your own heart, you have to admit that even mature followers of Jesus can sense reverberations in their hearts. They can experience doubt and insecurity in their walk. Did Jesus really say this? Is Jesus really with me? Is he real? Did he really live? Did he really teach these things? Did he rise from the dead? And is he ruling right now? Honest Christians can admit that sometimes they trust themselves and their own authority more than they trust the authority of Jesus. It's a personal passage. And before leaving this section to dive into how this works out in life through the parable, notice how the authority of the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, well, it actually operates. Jesus asked them one question about the uh, authority of another person. You see it in verse 29. Was the baptism of John from heaven, and by that Jesus means from God, or was it from man? What was John doing? You remember what he was doing. Everyone remembered that John, of course he's dead at this time in in the passage, but everyone remembers that what what John was doing is he was calling Jews to re-examine their lives, to consider how far they have strayed from worshiping the God who set them apart in the first place. John, he was telling them to repent and to uh, return to the one true God. This was a ministry of repentance, of moral reformation. And the religious leaders, they know that, and the public knows that. That's what John was doing. And the religious leaders are actually torn about John. On the one hand, uh, they believe that he was doing, he was a real person doing a real ministry. They can't, for instance, say that John never existed. Everyone knows that he existed. He was really doing something, that he had a message that accompanied his work of baptism. So on the one hand, they, they, uh, they believe that John was a real person. 
And in fact, we, we could assume that they believed that John was doing a real work of moral reformation among the Jews, making people more spiritually sensitive, uh, promoting uh, some kind of ethical goodness. But they can admit that, that John, he was doing that. They might even admit that John was functioning a lot like someone like Elijah, prophet who was calling the people to turn to God. On the one hand, they believe that John was a real person with a real ministry. Don't forget, by the way, that John came from a priestly family. They could admit all that, but on the other hand, John, he was pointing to Jesus as the only way to return to God. And the religious leaders, they couldn't have that. So they don't really believe John. Their authority is higher than John's, and they find that John is lacking. But notice the grounds by which they believe this. And it doesn't really have much to do with John at all. In verses 31 and 32, look at that. Mark, with the help of Peter, actually tells us what's going on in their minds. They can't believe that John's authority is from God, and here's why. Because John said that everyone has turned from God and needs to return to him in repentance. And if they believed that John's ministry was from God, well, they would have to admit that they were wrong at some point, that they actually need a gracious God to be with them and to love them. They need a God who is full of mercy and forgiveness. And they wouldn't admit that. I don't need a gracious God. And they can't believe John's authority is from other people, from man, either. Because then, well, then they would become themselves unpopular. They'd have to give up esteem from other people if they were to offend the other people. If they were to expose John the Baptist, show him to be a sham, then the other people, well, they would no longer honor the authority of the religious leaders. I want you to think of this as being very, very contemporary. Not something that's unusual, those religious leaders are so unique, but something that happens, that's happening all around us. Those who refuse to follow Jesus will thoroughly believe that their own authority is higher than that of Jesus. They'll believe that wholeheartedly. That's what it means to refuse to be a follower of Jesus. He's not worth your attention. But what we need to understand that even though that is very much a part of the age in which we live in, that people who refuse to follow Jesus are actually thoroughly believing in their own authority, what this passage is showing us in the minds of the religious leaders is that that belief in their authority, well, it's really thin, thin glass that's easily broken. I mean, listen to this. Part of their authority uh, simply comes from the fact that they believe they don't need grace. Grace is for other people. I don't need that. Doesn't that sound familiar to you? People say, I I know that what I'm doing is good. And while I'm not always right, I'm right enough of the time such that I don't need a merciful, forgiving God. I don't need his grace. That's for other people. I bring actually quite a bit to the table. Doesn't that sound familiar? And another part of the authority uh, of the age comes from the fact that, that others, well, others are like me. They too refuse to follow Jesus, and we are together in this. 
In fact, if I were to follow Jesus, I would be immensely unpopular among my friends, but in this age, I would become immensely unpopular in the culture at large. All refusals to become a follower of Jesus look an awful lot like the refusal of the religious leaders, but it's so very thin. They assume that they don't need a God of grace, and they assume that popularity with others really matters. In our age, it's actually very easy to thoroughly believe that our authority is higher than Jesus. I have what it takes, I don't need grace, and I'm just like everyone else. Just think of the large unchristian movements of our own day, uh, movements like the LGBTQ movement, uh, movements like the uh, pro-abortion movement. These are the kind of movements that, that work exactly like this. The followers of these particular movements believe that their own identity is itself grounds for authority. I bring to the table a lot. I have what it takes. I don't need any outside influence, and I certainly don't need someone to be gracious with me. I know what is right. And on the same token, they can look around and they can see others who also feel the same way. And they feel themselves, that, that movement. And uh, they are clearly right because look how many believe just like them. This is the post-Christian age. This is an age in which we live in, in which uh, people believe that if they become Christians, they lose more than they gain. This is the age of the nuns, those who have no religious affiliation at all. I am none, N-O-N-E, but so too are all of my friends. And if that's the spirit of the age, why believe in Jesus? But it's really very thin, that basis of authority. Thinking highly of yourself and uniting yourself closely with others. Is that where you're going to place your authority? Is it for those reasons that you're not going to become a follower of Jesus? And then Jesus gives a parable to describe what it looks like to confidently live as if our authority is higher than that of Jesus. Very helpfully, uh, Jesus gives us a word picture. It's a parable about a small business, and it's a parable about a small business that's very well run. It's a vineyard that has everything it needs to be successful. It's set up by this wise business owner. You see there, it has the normal stuff. It has vines, but it also has a wine press. It's a productive vineyard, and it has a fence for protection but it also has a watchtower. That would be somewhat unusual. It takes a lot of work to run this vineyard. It needs multiple staff, and the staff needs to be managed by capable uh, tenants. It must have been a pretty substantial vineyard. In fact, the owner uh, has the ability to leave it occasionally, which may mean that he has multiple vineyards. Needless to say, it's a very successful vineyard. And early on in the parable, the religious leaders who thoroughly believe in their own authority would notice that this picture of a business owner like this is really a picture of God from Isaiah chapter 5. We read that passage earlier in the service. This is a picture of God as the owner of the vineyard, making a successful vineyard. 
And in the parable, there's a number of these the servants who are very close to the owner, though they don't live uh, on the property itself. They uh, visit the vineyard in order to collect revenue. You see there to collect fruit. But they're also visiting the vineyard in order to assert the authority of the owner. They would dictate business development, as it were, these servants. But then you see, as these servants come to the vineyard, they're actually mistreated. They're mistreated by those who are called to hold a special authority in that vineyard, the tenants. Their authority, meaning the authority of the business owner, the authority of the servants, is immediately challenged. In fact, we never see a picture here of the tenants actually listening to the servants of the business owner. They beat one of the owner's servants, send him away. They do the same to the second servant, shaming him just a bit more than they did the first one. And then the third one, they simply kill. Then there was a fourth and a fifth and a sixth and so on. All of them were either beaten or they're just simply killed. Imagine that confidence. How confidently they refuse to follow the leadership of the business owner. Does that sound familiar to the spirit of our age? How confidently people refuse to believe in the one true God and to follow his one means of atonement. It's almost automatic. Yep, another servant came. Shall we beat him or kill him? I don't know. And then the next day, yep, another one came. What do you want to do with this guy? Beat him or kill him? But this business owner, he's actually generous, isn't he? He sends his own son, and the son would be a different kind of representative of the business owner. The son, he loves his father. He loves his father in such a way that to disobey him, well, that would just be unthinkable. He loves the father. He loves the boss. It's family. And the son would be representative of his father for another reason, that he obeys the father, not simply because the father is the boss, but because he actually delights in the pleasure of the father. I want us to understand in this parable, as I tie things up, that the father here is not coming in anger. The business owner is not sending the son so that the son would destroy everyone. Actually, The business owner sending the son is an act of affection. It shows the love of the father. The son would be his chiefest servant, as it were. Certainly the beloved servant. The servant that is most precious to him because he is his very son. And even though the tenants are deeply dangerous, naturally killing every servant that the business owner sends, He now sends his son. So great is his mercy. The father is actually coming close to the tenants. The business owner is actually coming as close as possible to the tenants, sending his own offspring to be with them. Does this sound at all familiar? You see, this parable is about Christianity, that God himself, he comes to us closely in his son, Jesus Christ. 
I want us to see uh, three things and then I'll, I'll, I'll close us. We confidently live as if our authority is higher than that of Jesus, but when we do so, we're living a lie. And the Son, He comes to tell us that. The Son comes to tell us three things. He tells us that God is the only creator. While the vineyard of the people connects with the people of Israel, keep in mind that Mark's gospel is actually written to Roman Christians, that they would not think that they are somehow outsiders to the business owner's purposes. All of them need to see that they live in a world that they didn't make, and you and I need to understand that as well. We didn't make this world. God made this world, and He called it good, and He gave that world everything that it needed for its flourishing, including intimacy with Him. He gave it to workers like Adam and Eve that they might promote the goodness that God has made, that they might have an intimate relationship with Him, and that they might multiply, increase a number of others who have that intimate relationship. Nobody lives in the place of their own creation. You understand how that's said by the Bible, not just for Christians, but for everyone in the world. No one lives in a place of their own creation. Paul says in Acts chapter 17 that everyone has life, breath, and existence because of God. This is true for Christians and non-Christians. He's the business owner in every way possible, and we are but tenants. And Adam and Eve are the first ones who rebelled against this business owner. Why? Because they believed that their authority was higher than the authority of God. They believed that in their own judgment that the fruit it was desirable to eat no matter what God says. And Adam and Eve were actually brought close together in their desiring of the fruit. They were even brought close together with Satan in their desiring of breaking God's law. Well, that was their authority, fighting against the authority of God. This, is, this parable teaches us about Christianity. He's the only creator, and everyone lives as a tenant in this world. Everyone. And the second is this. God is the only creator, but God doesn't slink back into the background. God makes himself known. I love how Mark doesn't give us the number of servants that visit. The servants represent many ways that God makes himself known through the family of uh, one man, Abraham, through the religious life of the temple, through the establishment of the nation of Israel, through the preservation of a remnant people even during the exile, from, or through the lasting power of the earthly church, through prophets then and through prophets now who are making known the message of the good news that Jesus Christ has died for your sins. There's not just one servant. God doesn't sleep into the background at all. He is making himself known, and the very pinnacle of making himself known is the revelation that centers on Jesus the Messiah, his beloved son. This parable teaches us about Christianity, that God, he is the only creator, and we are but tenants. He has authority, we don't. And second, that God, he doesn't slink into the background to disappear, that God is always making himself known, and he's doing that to you right here, right now, in the message of the gospel. And the third thing, well, the third thing is a threat, that God will punish us not simply for the refusal to follow the various servants, but for the refusal to follow the Son. This is where everything points to for you. Do you follow this Son? 
You may neglect for a while the prophets and the teaching of the Old Testament, God's unfolding story of revelation, but you'll be punished for all eternity for not following his very son. You see, we confidently live as if our authority is over the authority of Jesus, and we will be punished for that. Let me offer this as a reminder, and then we'll close. The authority of Jesus has massive scope. He is authoritative in every aspect of creation and life. You can deny him all you want, but he has authority not over you simply biologically. He made you. He has authority over every aspect of your life, thought, speech, and action. He owns you. His authority has scope. But his authority also has duration. You'll never outweigh him. His authority is never changing and eternal. And if you refuse to bow to that authority, you will see it very clearly one day. And his authority has proper grounds. He is the only means of God to save a sinner like you and a sinner like me who think that our authority is sometimes a little bit higher than that of Jesus. The grounds of his authority is the very plan of God to make all things right. His authority has scope, duration, and it has proper grounds. Now, will you set aside your own authority? Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we thank you for coming near to us. And we thank you that you've not unleashed all of your punishment immediately, but that you've given us an opportunity to hear the good news of the gospel, to believe in the good news of the gospel, to submit to the only one who has legitimate authority, Jesus the King, and for many of us, Jesus the Savior. In his name, amen.